0: Same reason that we can have joy. He put others first. Uh, Jesus didn't have to start with Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Jesus is Jesus. But He served others with His entire life, and He did so at the guidance of His Father. And so this morning, as we look at John chapter 19, I want you to remember that we're examining Jesus, uh, the sacrifices being prepared on our behalf. We no longer go to the temple and walk up those huge steps into a place of worship where we take an animal or some uh, seed and sacrifice it to the Lord, we now have a sacrifice that's already been made on our behalf by our high priest, Jesus, who was, in fact, the sacrificial lamb that would be slain at the time of Passover. And so as we look at the passage this morning, keep in mind that Jesus is being slain on the exact day that they would celebrate and make a sacrifice on Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, actually, when they were preparing to leave Egypt, you'll remember the story that God delivered them by the hand of Moses. Moses pleaded with Pharaoh over and over again. He said, let my people go, so they may go out to the wilderness and make sacrifices and worship their God. And Pharaoh would say, no, absolutely not. Who are you, right? and who wouldn't? They were his slaves. He had been feeding them. He had been uh, using them to build his great kingdom. And so as Moses, being the mouthpiece of God, kept going to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would say no. And then there's all the plagues. You guys remember the plagues against what you'll see is they're actually plagues against the gods that Egyptians worshipped. The frog god. They worshipped the Nile. And all of those things were basically showing them that your gods We're actually created by the one true and living God. And so you're worshiping created things. And meantime, the God of creation is trying to show you in his mercy that you're worshiping idols that are false. But that aside, as he is doing these plagues, the final plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn. It would be the firstborn of the animals, their livestock, and it would be the firstborn of their children in each household. And if you remember, they said, uh, Moses told the children of Israel, he said, I want you to take a lamb from your flock, and I want you to prepare it. I want you to pick a spotless lamb without blemish, and I want you to slaughter it. And if your family's too small to have its own lamb, then get a couple families together, your neighbors, and slaughter a lamb. And when they would slaughter the lamb, he said, I want you to eat it of the sacrifice. And I want you to take the blood after you drain it, before you eat it, take that blood and put take a piece of hyssop. And hyssop in Israel is like a weed. And in that region of Egypt and Israel, it's like a weed. And so they'd pick it up, and it was kind of sponge-like, and they would stick it in the blood, and the, the blood would soak up in it like a paintbrush, and then you would put it on the doorposts and on the lentils. And what you were doing, Moses told them, as you were... Sanctifying, You were setting yourselves apart. You were showing that you trusted the one true and living God so that the, when the angel of death passed over Egypt, that your firstborn would be essentially passed over. There would be no death in your home. And so Jesus is a fulfillment of this Passover. But if you read in Exodus 12, go and look this week. What he says is I want you to practice this every year at the same time because when you practice it, you'll remember that you were passed over by the Lord, and you were brought out of Egypt by me. And as they practiced this every year, they thought, okay, we're doing it. We're being obedient, Lord. We're being obedient. Until that day when Jesus is sacrificed on that exact day. This is not a coincidence. This is God fulfilling the true Passover. This was only a type, a shadow of what God was going to do by taking this spotless Without blemish, sinless lamb, this innocent animal, except it was now Jesus and slaying him for the salvation of not just the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. It's on Passover. And so, as they're celebrating Passover and as they come into Jerusalem and they would practice this feast, they don't see it yet, the disciples. And so, when he comes in and he's, and then they take the meal, they He institutes communion on the night of Passover. And then, and only then, he goes to the garden to pray and he's with his disciples. The heat is on and here comes these religious leaders being led by Judas the betrayer. And he comes into the garden and and there he's betrayed with a kiss. And these armed guards come and take Jesus. Jesus was never at any time violent. The only time we see him violent is when he is judging those in the temple who are making it a place of merchandise and they're robbing people and stealing from them uh, by changing the money dishonestly but then Jesus takes a whip of cords and he knocks over the table but I think it's interesting he didn't he didn't knock over the table with the doves on it he opened the cage and let them out he was violent but he wasn't harmful he wasn't killing animals he wasn't he wasn't uh, you know, he was merciful. And so I'm kind of getting caught up in that story. But if you go back with me to John 19 and you see the, this part of the story, remember Jesus has already been examined by the religious leaders. And now he's been examined by the procurator or king, uh, Pilate, who was not the king, but he was definitely a, kind of a, a puppet king. And he was being used by the Roman government to keep the peace there. Well, Pilate was caught between a rock and a hard place. Pilate was caught between seeing and examining. If you remember from last week, Steve taught us that he was examining Jesus, and he was going through all the protocol. He couldn't find anything that Jesus had done wrong. He even gave them the out. He goes, would you like me to release this guy, this murderer, or Jesus, who is obviously innocent? And they said, give us Barabbas. Give us this murderer. Give us this thief. And so they let him go instead of Jesus. They had another opportunity to make a good choice. All the time with Lucy, if she makes a bad choice, we're saying, do you want to try again? We're giving her an out. We're saying, hey, you can make another decision, a better one perhaps. But these people looked at Jesus and then the religious leaders, they shouted out, crucify him. And they they were taunting it. Basically, kind of like the way you start a wa- the wave at the Cardinals game. You just keep trying until it happens. Well, they start taunting, crucify Jesus. Not a really good parallel, but you get what I'm saying. So as he, they're taunting him, they, eventually he caves. Because Pilate knows that if there's another stirring up, if there's another uprising in this particular area that he's responsible for, he's going to lose his position they're going to take it from him. He's no longer going to get to be the procurator or the representative there. And so he stands there and he makes the judgment, but he washes his hands. He says this isn't on my hands. Well, you can't do that. You have to, every one of us has to make a decision about Jesus. And we're responsible no matter what people care about us, we are responsible for our own decision about what we're going to do with Jesus. And so he scourged him. And what they would do is they would take someone who was accused of something, they would take this cat of nine tails with glass shards and shells and whatever else, and they would whip it across the back of the accused. And they would stretch him out over this, um, basically they would tie him to a post and stretch out his back. Well, you know what happens if you take a piece of yarn and you pull it real tight, and then you just barely rub a knife across it, it goes, (laughs) it's cut. You have that extra pressure on there and then you would put the knife on there it can even be a dull knife and it will cut well that's what they would do with their backs they would stretch him out and then they would take this whip and they would whip over the cross of the back and they would basically leave stripes on them and he was so marred some accounts say from historians that you could not even recognize him so we think of the cross and obviously that's torture and that's pain and that's death but by the time he got to the cross, he had already bled so much, he couldn't even carry the cross beam to the place that they would crucify him. So, here we are. Jesus is going to be crucified, but he was examined. That whipping they would do is to get a confession out of the accused. They would try to get more information. And perhaps, many times, if they would give them enough information, they would only beat them lightly. So there's encouragement there. Hey, if there's anybody with you, if there's something else that was, hey, you need to confess your crime. Well, Jesus never confessed anything. He never said a word. (laughs) I would have made something up. I would have come up with some way to get out of the beating I was taking. I I did it, whatever, just stop. But Jesus never once gave in. There's a lot of power in that. And so verse 17 it says there, he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. It's where we get our word, Calvary. When Jesus was crucified on Calvary, not cavalry, which would be like a, a legion of horses. Uh, you know, we think of cavalry, you think in sending the cal- cavalry, and it was like the tanks in the day of, they would do battle, they send all these horses in with armed riders, Not cavalry, but Calvary. And so when you see the word here, he says Golgotha. When you translate it to our language, we get the word Calvary. That's where Jesus died for our sins. And so it's called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him. One on either side and Jesus in the center. So in Isaiah 53, where it says he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he was crucified with guilty people. He was not guilty, but they were guilty. And we see that in the crucifixion account where Jesus was up there on the cross. One guy was cursing him and the other guy was not. The other guy was saying, hey, we're guilty. This guy hasn't done anything. I don't know if I would mouth him if I were you. But I want to point this picture out. It's no coincidence. Uh, We were walking on top of the city wall that surrounds the old city of Jerusalem. And while we were walking, I didn't know we were going to do this, but we got towards the Damascus Gate. And at the Damascus Gate there, as we're standing on top of the wall, where at some point there were soldiers up there fighting, which was kind of crazy, over the, the wall of Jerusalem. We looked over, and there's this bus station. You see all the buses? And over here you can see this mosque. And there's some hotels, and you know there's some modern buildings. But right there, you see those rocks? That's Golgotha many believe that that was the actual site of golgotha now it's called gordon's tomb there's two places that people go to see an empty tomb now obviously you could set up a tomb anywhere but what they found is in this area here a guy from uh britain great britain was there and he was looking from the city wall and he goes that's interesting that looks like a face see it's called the place of a skull because there's two eyes now I'm not exactly sure what holes you want to call the eyes, and above it, there's like a piece of rock that looks like a furrowed brow, and then there was a rock until just a few years ago that looked like a nose, and there's a mouth there. The nose fell off, but right there where all these trees are above that building, there's a little garden area, and in there, there's what you would call a rich man's garden. There was a wine press, there's a, I think there might even be a spring there, but Right there is where we took pictures. I didn't put the picture in there for this, but that's where we went and we took communion and we looked at the empty tomb. And there's a sign on the tomb that says, he is risen, he is not here. But my point is, that is essentially right, this stone is on the wall we were standing on. So right outside the city gates is where they crucified him, right there. That blew me away that it was so close. And at the same time, the stone that rolled away from the tomb, was a hundred yards away from where he would have been crucified. Now we hear the old song, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem emblem of suffering and shame. And we picture Jesus dying on top of the hill. But that's not where it would have been. See, Romans used crucifixion as a way to make a public example. Here's what happens when you mess with Rome. And they would crucify you, right by the road, to warn everybody else, if you mess with Rome, then we're going to do the same thing to you. Now, if you're watching that happen, you're going, okay, I'm going to follow the rules. Just a few years back in the early 90s, there was a young man from the United States that went to Singapore. And while he was there, and everybody I talked to about this uh, while we were in uh, Israel, remembered this story. Because a young man was over there, and he decided, I'm going to graffiti, and he used spray paint and spray painted some things in Singapore, and what's interesting is they caught him, and they came to him publicly, public display of discipline. Now, what you'll know about Singapore, maybe you don't know because you've not been there, and I haven't either, but people tell me it's one of the cleanest places you can go overseas. Interesting, right? Public humiliation causes there to be a fear that causes people not to do things that are stupid. And so we might learn something from that. But the Romans would crucify their, their prisoners alongside the road. They would not do this to citizens. They would only do it to people who were considered slaves and did the most heinous crimes. So, bearing his cross, verse 17, he went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and he put it on the cross and the writing said this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So many times they would put a placard right above their head. They'd put it, what his crime was, what he was being punished for. Now, since Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him, he said, here's what he's being killed for. He's the king of the Jews. Now, the religious leaders and the people of Jerusalem, they're like, no, he's not our king. We have no king but Caesar. That's what they said last week. And then it says in verse 20, many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. We see in our picture. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew was the language of religion. Greek was the language of philosophy, and Latin is the language of law. And so these three languages show us something about Jerusalem. It's the center by which all people come to this area. It's like a a crossroads where people meet up that would never meet up. All these people from all over the world are still coming to Jerusalem. And to this day, it's a melting pot of nations. I cannot tell you how many Asian people I saw in Israel. Many of them are believers, they're Christians, they're to visit, to check things out. Uh, But we saw people from all over the world, right there in the middle of Jerusalem, this insignificant city. Therefore, verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but instead, I am, or excuse me, instead write He said, I am the king of the Jews. He claimed to be our king. He's not. Interesting, right? But here's the interesting thing, and I had never been a Greek scholar, uh, but I read some people who are, so I learned things from them. But what they say about this passage is that this particular verse, verse 21, is not so much that they said one time, hey, don't write that. Write something else. It's that they said over and over and over again. They were pleading with him. They were begging him. Perhaps they were even chanting it. Hey, don't write that. Hey, don't write that. Please take that down. They were were consistently saying this to him. So it's not that they said it one time. It's that they kept saying it. And what's interesting is his answer. Verse 22, Pilate answered what I have written, I have written. In other words, it's kind of like the law of the Medes and the Persians, if you remember from the Old Testament. What I have written cannot be reversed, and it will remain forever. So, interesting. Pilate investigated this guy. Now, we have nothing in Scripture that says Pilate ever started to believe in Jesus or follow him. But if anything else, he was pretty close. Uh, Now, close doesn't get you there. But I find it interesting that of all the people in Israel— Here, Pilate is is writing down king of the Jews. Now, verse 23 says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let's not tear it into four pieces, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, they didn't say this. They didn't say that the scripture might be fulfilled. But John inserts here that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says that they divided his garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Prophecy is an interesting thing, and I think a lot of Christians struggle with it. But I think that this particular prophecy is mentioned by John to encourage those that are reading this about Jesus being brutally crucified that God's still in control. God's not unaware. This didn't catch him off guard. Like this is all a part of God's plan to redeem the whole world. He, he prophesied through the pen of the psalmist in Psalm 22 this very thing happening. That they would cast lots. At the time that the psalmist wrote that, that Jesus would be crucified, there was no such punishment. At the time that the psalmist wrote that they would cast lots for his clothing, that wasn't a practice. He wasn't looking at all of the ways that things that people were corporally punished and going, oh, that's how Jesus is going to die. He was seeing into the future what God was revealing to him, that Jesus would not only be crucified, but giving imminent details so that when it came to pass we could look back and go wow this wasn't an accident this wasn't a coincidence god planned it and so we see jesus fulfilling prophecy without even trying this was foreordained they divided his garments among them and for their for his clothing they cast lots therefore the soldiers did these things now verse 25 there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John never mentions his own name. If you notice in the book of John, if you ever read it through, you'll see this phrase over and over again. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't see himself as John anymore. He saw himself as a man who had been loved by Jesus. And so when he writes his name, that's how he writes it. So when Jesus looked down from the cross, look at who he saw. Jesus' mother, excuse me, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And we find out that John was there. Now, where are his disciples? Where are the people that were closest to him? Where are the people that that knew him better than anybody else? They scattered. Now, this was also a fulfillment of prophecy, but on Jesus' greatest hour of need, where are his followers? Where are those that, that were saying, Lord, we will never forsake you? Peter even. He said, if you die, I will die with you. Now, Jesus told him, no, you won't. You won't even be there. As a matter of fact, Satan has asked of me, to sift you, and I have prayed for you, and I will restore you. But it, it, it encourages me because I, like the disciples, cannot relate so much with John. So I, number one, I forget that Jesus loves me personally. But number two, when things get hard, I, I, I forsake Jesus. I, I go to my happy place. Uh, when Jesus is there, And something hard is going on. Many times I go to some other place to find solace or encouragement. And meanwhile, Jesus is right there. Jesus could identify with loneliness. I guess I want to point that out. Um, But while he's up on the cross, notice what Jesus has to say. I think it's very important. And there's sermons and there's books written on it. But real quick, I want to go through the things that Jesus said. And I want to start with what we read here in John. When Jesus therefore saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing by, he did not say, you guys are the only ones here. Where's my people? He didn't say that. He didn't complain. What he did was he looked down and he saw his mom. And he was concerned for her. Many times we get so caught up in life that we don't obey the simple commands. And Jesus is being tortured. Many believe that his entrails were showing and he was brutally beaten, and then he was hung on a cross, and he looks down and he sees his mom, and he doesn't say, help me. He says, woman, to his mom, behold your son. And he's, he's talking about John. And then he looks at his disciple John, and he says, behold your mother. He's connecting them. He's saying, hey, take care of each other. I'm going to be gone, but I'm leaving you, mom, with somebody that will be taking care of you. He was there. There wasn't some place to leave her at a home. There wasn't another family member around. He wanted John to take care of his mom, because John was there through thick and thin. What an honor! Can you imagine standing there and Jesus says, "Hey, I want you to take care of my mom." (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm in. Sign me up. Now essentially he got a lot more responsibility because of that. But what an honor! Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. How amazing. So, I want to go through the things that he said. Uh, On the cross, the first things that he said were about others. Uh, In Luke chapter 23, he says, the first thing he said while up on the cross was not, this is unfair. It wasn't, hey, take me down from here. It was this, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. I wonder if that was the phrase that he said on the cross that caused one of those thieves to go, hey, this guy, he's got to be innocent. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? That's what he said. And then after that, in Luke 23, Jesus said to that man, one of the things that he said from the cross was, today you will be with me in paradise. And then in John 19, we just saw, behold your son, behold your mother, and then the next thing he says, it's the middle thing, it was to his father. He says this in Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing separation from his father for the very first time since his incarnation into a human body. He lived in the presence of his father. And then he said, I thirst in John chapter 19 verse 28. He said, I thirst. So he's experiencing separation from god thirst and we know from the last few passages he's experiencing darkness darkness thirst separation from god what does that sound like to you guys hell jesus bore hell he experienced hell for you and i not not figurative hell but literally what hell is going to be like for the unbeliever and he didn't complain He's thinking about his mom. He's thinking about his disciples. So before we get to the rest of the things he said, verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there. Uh, It wasn't anything in particular. He's already rejected wine before that was mixed with some sort of thing that would be like a narcotic to numb the pain. He rejected that he wanted to take the full brunt of the pain he didn't want to cheat his way through it but now he says i thirst and a vessel of sour wine was sitting there if you want to picture what what the current version of that would be it'd be like boone's farm like cheapo wine they did, the 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 legion was sitting there drinking it you know hey what do you hey pass me that bottle and they'd be swigging on it it was cheap wine that's why it was sour so they a vessel of full sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine. They put the sponge on the end of a piece of hyssop. Remember hyssop from our story where Jesus was the Passover over lamb? They're using hyssop to put the blood on the door and on the lintel of the, the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. Now hyssop being used to give sour wine to Jesus to wet his, his whistle so he can talk. And he put it in his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine on his mouth, perhaps to moisten his tongue so he could speak, he said this, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the day of preparation, it was a religious day, the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that day was the Sabbath day, it was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. See, they could use their legs to hold themselves up to get a gulp of air, and then they would sag down, and then they would use their legs again to push on the nail. Can you imagine? So that they could breathe out, and over and over, it, this would prolong their death, as if crucifixion wasn't bad enough. And so, in order to deal with their religious day, you know, hey, we want to re- we want to worship God, and we don't want these stinky bodies out here. Uh, how hypocritical right so break their legs so that they'll die quicker and then we can get them down off of their crosses and so they went through to break their legs but it says here verse 33 when they came to jesus and saw that he was already dead they did not break his legs this is interesting to me because these two thieves these two prisoners were guilty and they were living they were still alive and jesus was not Now, part of it could be the scourging, but I also believe that Jesus, he said to them, he said, no one takes my life, I give it freely. So when he had finished what he was supposed to do on the cross, he gave up his spirit. He let go. When it was done, it was done. He was in control the whole time. And so they didn't have to break his legs, but one of the soldiers instead pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, this is John writing, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. By this point in the church, there are already people saying that Jesus' body was not a physical body. Remember, John wrote this at 90 or so A.D. He wrote it after all the other writers. And there was this group that came along, the Gnostics, that said, well, Jesus was more of just a spirit. He wasn't a human flesh body. Well, this account here, John saying, no, they pierced his side and blood and water poured out. It was a physical body. I've testified to this. I saw it myself. It's true. And he who has seen it has testified. Verse 36, for these things were done so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then he quotes there. And he says, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The first one from verse 36, says, not one of his bones shall be broken. That's not, that was, that wasn't a scripture, that wasn't a messianic passage from Psalms. That was in Exodus where they talked about the Passover lamb. When they ate the lamb, they were never supposed to break any of the bones. It was never about the bones being broken. It was never about making sure they didn't eat the marrow or anything silly like that. It was so that when Jesus died, it would be the same meaning The bones were never broken. There's that connection. He is the Passover lamb. Interesting, also, they were supposed to break the bones of the legs. Those soldiers were disobedient. They broke the other two guys' bones, but they didn't break the leg bones of Jesus. They disobeyed. They probably thought they were disobeying because he was already dead. But they were disobeying because God said, His bones shall not be broken. He fulfilled Scripture once again. And they shall look on the one whom they pierced. He was fulfilling Zechariah. So, verse 38, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came, he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, whom we know from John 3, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds be very expensive verse 40 then they took the body of Jesus they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby so you see in our picture here basically if the road was going through here Jesus would have been crucified here and then taken to where these trees were in the garden. So it was very close. It didn't take any time at all. They didn't even have to carry him very far. And he was prepared for burial, and then he was buried. They did it hastily. In other words, they didn't go to town and then get the spices. They knew, I believe Joseph and Nicodemus knew he was going to be killed. And they already had the stuff ready. Many believe that Joseph actually had the tomb made... In preparation for Jesus to come he already had this property he had this burial plot he prepared a place to bury Jesus he respected Jesus he saw him and he said I can give him a burial this is also a fulfillment of prophecy because it says that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors but at his death he would be buried with the rich Jesus had no money how could how else could that happen so what he said on the cross it is finished let's focus on that as we close jesus said this on the cross to telestai to telestai is a word that means it is finished now that loses meaning for you and i uh, but in that day the word meant it is finished it stands finished and it will always be finished it was one word that meant all of that but here's another thing this is a commonly used term and i was sharing this with kelly this morning we were kind of blown away but a servant or a slave who would work for his master would be given something to do. And after he was finished with it, he would go back to his master and he would say, Tetelestai, I have completed the work that you assigned to me, master. Jesus is the servant of God. He was coming back to his father and saying, I have finished the work that you've given to me. As a priest, a priest would use this word. And when they would bring the animal for a sacrifice, he would examine the animal That animal had all kinds of tests to pass. He had to be without spot or blemish. He had to be a perfect specimen. Jesus has been tested by the religious leaders, found without fault. He's been tested by the uh, Romans, the government, found without fault, even under scourging. He's been tested now, examined by death, and there was no fault found in him. You know what people really are when they go through suffering because everything comes out good, bad, otherwise. and otherwise. We just watched Jesus. There was nothing bad within him. So as a priest, they would examine the lamb. They would look at it, and if it was found to be ready and good for sacrifice, he would say to Telestai, without spot or blemish, this sacrifice is complete. It's ready to go. Jesus is our sacrifice. An artist or a writer, they'd be commissioned to do a work They'd be commissioned to make a sculpture, or to paint a painting, or to write a manuscript. And when they were done, they would say, it is finished, it is complete. The Old Testament was always incomplete, because all of these prophecies, all these things hadn't been fulfilled. And we have the New Testament, where we see all of these things fulfilled in Jesus. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, and he does everything his Father gave him to do as an artist, as a writer, writing this redemption story for humankind, he says, it's finished, it's written, the, the story's over, <laughs> here I am. And then he breathes his last. But here's an even better one. Merchants, in, in the day of Jesus, when they would make a transaction, if you owed them money, so you took out a loan, and you paid them the last amount of your debt, they would look at you and they would say, tetelestines. The debt is paid in full. Jesus was saying all of these things with a simple phrase, it is finished. And I love this because at the place of the skull, at Calvary, Jesus paid it all. That's why we sing that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he has made us white as snow. So we see this Two fluids coming out of Jesus' body, and there are all kinds of theories about what it means, and we can draw all kinds of things, but I I believe that Jesus, his body, was so done that those two things had separated. They were mixed together, and they came out. When the blood came out, it showed our guilt. Our guilt, without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus' blood poured out, and then the water for the cleansing, for the making new, and so here we have this perfect sacrifice examined through everything and yet found to be the perfect spotless blood of the Lamb. And so I ask you today, do you live like it's finished? Do you realize that your debt has been paid? Do you live like that? Do you see that salvation is done? It's complete. We don't have to add anything to it. We don't have to earn anything. How many times do you ask somebody, do you know Jesus and they say, you know, you ask him, do you believe you're going to heaven? And a lot of people will say, I hope so because I'm working hard. That's an affront to the Lord. That, that's offensive to God when we say that we're working on our salvation, trying to prove ourselves to him because Jesus said it right here. It's done. You don't have to do anything. Now we're in a get-to kind of thing. You know, why do you go worship Jesus? Because I get to. He saved me. How can I not? He's completed everything that I could not do on my own. So next week we'll look at, on Easter Sunday, the resurrection. But this week we have to look at the bad news. Jesus was put to death. But on Friday we celebrate that very day where Jesus laid it all out there for us. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says Jesus didn't come to to be served, but to serve and give his life as a sacrifice for many. We look at that. We celebrate that. Because it means life for us. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we could spend probably another hour looking at... um,